This is a Romy cast. This podcast was recorded in August of 2021. Never get tired of being Beatles. When I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, Sergeant. Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we want to do, do what we want to do. If you think it was more keeping, you know, scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. We will be taking a stroll along the cast iron shore and peeling off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest discussing their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Great show for you today. Glad you could join us. The podcast website is romycast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far. This is the fifth episode of Series 2. You can find the first four episodes of this series as well as all 15 episodes of Series 1. And also, very importantly, if you see fit, uh, you can make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free. Any donation is much appreciated and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of me doing the show. Uh, Web hosting, advertising, it's a labor of love for me and I do it because I enjoy it. But if you enjoy the show, I ask that you please consider a donation to support the show. Maybe just as little as a couple of dollars per episode, it's not that much. Just a click on the donate button on the website and you can donate. And along those lines, big shout out and much appreciation to Andre Rybeck, a return supporter of the podcast who made a donation last week. Andre, thank you so much for your support. I really, really do appreciate it. I'll give you a shout out as well if you make a donation. Again, you can do that by just visiting the website romicast.com. If you don't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, uh, do leave a positive review or rating. Those things really do help. Thank you very much for that. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. That's Romanuk Paul, uh, my name in reverse. Uh, That's also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. You can also reach out to me via my web page, which is romicast.com. And you can also join us on Facebook. There is a Facebook group page. Just do a search when you're on Facebook for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page, and you can find that there. 
My guest today is a returning guest, a talented songwriter and musician, a friend of mine, and a Canadian indie music icon, Mr. Stephen Stanley. Now, Stephen spent his formative years in one of the great Canadian indie bands, the lowest of the low, which he co-founded and also played lead guitar in. Stephen and the band were inducted into the Canadian Indie Music Hall of Fame in 2008. Now, Stephen has fronted his own band for the last several years, and his latest album is a live record. It's called Live Static Roots, and it was recorded in Oberhausen, Germany, at the Live Static Roots Festival in 2018, pre-COVID, obviously. His latest studio record, if you missed it, it's called Jimmy and the Moon. It's an excellent record. It dropped in 2017, and it really, really is a great find. Give it a listen. You can find info on both records at Stephen's website, which is stephenstanleyband.com. That is stephenstanleyband.com. You can stream those albums and many more wherever you stream your music. Stephen also hosts a weekly radio show on Hunter's Bay Radio. It runs on Mondays at 2 p.m. in the Eastern Time Zone. You can find more information on that online at muskokaradio.com. So, Stephen Stanley, musician, songwriter, radio host, and Beatles fan. Stephen, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about the Beatles. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here again, and it's great that the audience is so receptive, too. It wasn't... It wasn't the case last time. <laughs> a well, a well loved episode from uh, Stephen oh, Stanley in series one. Oh yeah, yeah, magical mystery tour. How could yeah. you go wrong? But here's a this is a bizarre one uh, because you have zoomed ahead from you, you see you surprised me the last time uh, with your history of you know indie band lowest of the low very distinctive sound uh, and where most people would be familiar with you went off on the psychedelia route with Magical Mystery Tour, which was a surprise and it was it was great. And now you zoom way ahead and you're kind of, you're making a bit of history here. You're sort of off the Beatle piste a little bit. Uh, there's a George Harrison connection, but we're going to talk about Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1. What fascinates you enough about this record for you to choose it? Well, I think, you know, Knowing that some uh, really great musicians had had done some great talks with you about various Beatles records, I, I found this a bit challenging because I think when we first talked about it, I told you that I probably wasn't, I didn't consider this album a great record. So I wanted to sort of dig back into it and see why that was. And in the process, I've come to love it again. You know, I mean, it's like, that's a lot of years, 88 it came out. So I, I really felt like, you know, my George Harrison connection... I have a very, very, you know, definitive and strong feelings about him as a writer, as a guitar player, as a singer. I mean, one, like one of my favorites of all time. And uh, an interesting quote that I want to slip in later from uh, Paul McCartney from the uh, from the Disney Plus series with Rick Rubin, where he talks about George Harrison as a songwriter that I thought was so revealing. Um, we'll talk about that later, though. But, you know, I thought that was a good starting point. And my original thought about this record was that George Harrison had really you know, brought some A-game to it and some of the other guys, maybe not so much. But my opinion about that has completely changed now, having spent a lot of time with it. So, you know, I think there's a, it's an interesting study and there's also an interesting, a really interesting look at the recording process when you're with friends doing... 
Well, and I've got lots of stuff to tie in with stuff yeah. you've done to talk about that. But let's uh, put things in a little bit of context uh, before we go any further. So it's the 1980s. Uh, the Beatles, as both a group and as solo artists, are not very relevant when you think back then. Uh, the biggest selling artists of the decade are Michael Jackson, uh, Madonna, Phil Collins, U2, Prince, Queen, ACDC, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, you get the picture. However, the Beatles as a band started to get some love in the charts in 1987. Why? Well, because their original albums were finally being released onto the CD format, kids. Uh, after many years of negotiations. They came out in three batches in 87, starting in February of that year, A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles and Please Please Me, all re-entered the UK charts. The White Album, Sgt. Peppers and Abbey Road also re-entered the charts as well when they were released on CD. So, where is George Harrison in all of this? Uh, He had seemingly retired from the music business after releasing Gone Tropo in 1982, and if you've heard that album, Uh, It was probably a good idea that maybe he was thinking of retiring. Didn't promote the album. It wasn't very good, and it did not trouble the charts at all. Uh, For that matter, the last Harrison solo record that really registered in terms of sales and hit songs was 1979's self-titled album, uh, which was a top 20 album on the Billboard charts and featured the hit single Blow Away. So Harrison was concentrating most of his efforts at this time on the film business, his Handmade Films Company was notable for films such as Life of Brian, The Monty Python Flick, Time Bandits, Long Good Friday, all really good films. So by the mid to late 80s, the general consensus, I think, of the music fan public was that Harrison was done as a musician and he had sort of moved on. However, by late 1986, Harrison had some songs that he wanted to record, and he was getting the itch to get back into the studio. I guess once a musician, always a musician. And he partnered up with former ELO frontman Jeff Lynn as producer and collaborator and came up with Cloud Nine. And to quote Harrison... He was looking for a collaborator who would understand me and my past and have respect for that, who I have great respect for. And then I hit on Jeff Lynne. Cloud Nine was released in November of 1987, just weeks after the release of Abbey Road and Let It Be on CD. Cloud Nine was a return to form for Harrison. The album was propelled along by the U.S. number one Got My Mind Set On You, a cover of a 1962 single written by James Ray, and also an homage to his days in the Beatles, a great song called When We Was Fab. So... What to do next? Well, on February 10th of 1988, during an interview to promote Cloud Nine on the syndicated U.S. radio show Rockline, I remember that, uh, Harrison expressed a desire to form a new band called the Traveling Wilburys with, quote, me and my mates. Wilburys would have been a bit of an in-joke between Lynn and Harrison when they were recording Cloud Nine. It's a term they came up with while recording Cloud Nine for a way to cover up uh, any equipment mistake Wilbury as in we'll bury it in the mix. We'll bury it in the mix. So Harrison clearly enjoyed being in a band. He had it both ways in the greatest band in the world and then later in the Wilburys and also a lot of solo work with a band. But as, as a front 
guy. Uh, now, you've had it both ways, Stephen, with the lowest of the low and now the Stephen Stanley band. Explain the differences for an artist working in those two different scenarios. Sure. And I think, you know, in my case, they're both bands. I've, you know, I do like, I do enjoy doing uh, stuff by myself as well because you do have complete control over what it is you do. And, you know, you, I think as you get older, for me anyways, and I think for a lot of musicians, you have more, you set more of a vision in your head about what a song should sound like. So there's a bit of a struggle when you take it to a band or a group of players and there's a bit of a struggle to sort of reconcile the idea that this is what I'm doing, what I wanted to do, and this is what everybody else is doing with it. And that can be fun. That can be challenging. Uh, you know, and I think that might have been the, um, you know, the, the secret undoing of Lowest to the Low is that the main songwriter was, you know, Ron Hawkins and wasn't me. And uh, I wrote a bit for that band, but not a lot. And, uh, you know, I think over time he was developing a real vision of how he wanted his songs to sound, which was, you know, completely, as I look back, completely justified, completely natural, really, because I, I feel the same way now. But when you've come from this, Lowest of Low was an incredibly collaborative experience at the beginning. Very, you know, everything was felt like we were creating it together. And I think it was getting less and less like that as it went along. So, you know, you change your, you change your opinion about it. And I, and I, I stayed around in the band for a long time. And, you know, I had to admit that uh, to myself by 2012, which was about the third iteration of the band, it wasn't so much fun playing all the old stuff. And, and I wanted to try something different. But I, I did want to, you know, I get what, what you're talking about with Harrison because the, the fun of having people around you to collaborate with is what music's all about to me. It's great, you know, I mean, like the pandemic has produced this situation for me where I've spent a ton of time just in my basement playing guitar by myself. And, you know, you develop different ways to play songs, you develop different ways to play guitar. And I've done a couple, I guess two or three backyard shows now as we've, you know, trying to get back to something that looks a little bit normal. Um, and I notice I noticed the difference. I noticed what, what this last year and a half has done to me as a player, translating over to the stage, which was something as a young musician, I never was aware of, you know, the idea of the, the idea of trying to match up what happens in a rehearsal space with, or in your house or in your basement or wherever you play your guitar and your, your piano with what happens on stage. And, you know, those things were two very different experiences to me when I was younger. Now I'm seeing that translate really nicely. So it's a, it's a bit of wherewithal. Um, yeah, you know, it's to me. It's always been. A, I've always wanted to come back to the band, the band uh, ideology, because there's so many good things that come out of that. Mm. And you know, it's not a fine, it's not a great financial model by any means. <laughs> there's so many great things that come out. Of it, so. I, I, I get it, and I, I mean, my my career is a sports broad, sports broadcasting is not musicianing, uh, and vice versa. But I, I know having done a lot of shows as a solo commentator uh, and then doing shows where you have a co-commentator and it's, I like having somebody else to play off of, to bounce off of. And It's interesting, isn't it? Because everything you're saying about that, like the model in sports casting right now seems to be have it, to have at least three or four people involved with every every show. So you have a lot of ways to bounce ideas around. That's what it's all about. I mean, if, you know, if you find the right people and you can bounce ideas around with each other, excuse me, um, you can you know, achieve great stuff or, or unexpected stuff. And that's what, you know, that's, I mean, we're just, we're just starting now. We just spent nine days uh, on the beginning of our new record uh, recording on Wolf Island again. And 
that's that's what the best that's what the best part of the process for me. You just get into the studio and things start to happen. You allow things to happen and they so let's shuttle back to April 4th, 1988 yes. and Harrison's in LA and he's hanging out with Lynn and Warner Brothers Records give him a call and say, uh, hey, we need a track to put on a scheduled German 12-inch release of This Is Love off of the Cloud Nine album. Harrison didn't have anything suitable for release lying around, so he sets about organizing a quick session to slap together something to go on this 12-inch. As the story goes, needing a place to record on short notice, they called Bob Dylan and asked if they could use the garage studio at his Malibu home. Come on over tomorrow, says Dylan. They'd had dinner the night before with Roy Orbison, so they asked him if he could come along, and Lynn was working on him with an album that was to come out later. And apparently, one of Harrison's guitars was at Tom Petty's place, so they rang up Petty and asked him to bring the guitar and come along as well. They sat around in a circle, each musician with an acoustic, and they worked out the arrangement that Harrison had half-finished. The quote is, uh, George had half a song ready to go. We finished it off in Bob Dylan's garage, recorded it there, and then wrote the words, After Dinner, says Jeff Lynn. The title was inspired by the words, Handle with Care, on one of the packing crates in Dylan's garage. The whole thing was done and dusted in about five hours. Harrison delivers the song to Mo Austin at Warner Music, who immediately informs Lynn and Harrison that the track is way too good to bury as a bonus track on a German 12-inch single. And he suggests they record an entire album with that band lineup. And so it was that on May the 7th, 1988, on a tight schedule to accommodate Bob Dylan's never-ending tour, the quintet convenes at the home studio of former Eurythmics frontman Dave Stewart in L.A., and they set to work. They had nine days to get the basic tracks for the record down. Harrison and Lynn, with contributions from Petty and Orbison uh, later on, would subsequently worked throughout the summer at Harrison's home studio at Henley on Thames, uh, adding overdubs that they played, as well as, again, Petty and Orbison showing up to add things. Uh, Jim Keltner played some drums, percussion from Ray Cooper, and horns from Jim Horn. The sessions were top secret, in light of the delicate negotiations that had to go on amongst all of the record companies, uh, there were particular problems ironing out between uh, things between Dylan's record company, Columbia, and Warner, uh, sort of a flashback to the Bangladesh album. I don't know if concert for Bangladesh. Dylan's record company was the most difficult doing those negotiations. So they finally got it done. Now, by all indications, Stephen, the group had just a fantastic time recording the basic tracks. Uh, George Harrison put it down partially to the venue they were in, Dave Stewart's home in California. They set up a makeshift studio in the kitchen, five guys sitting around strumming acoustics. The windows were open, people preparing meals. There's video of this that you can see on YouTube. Just looked like a a, a really cool atmosphere. Uh, Now, lately... You've been fond of recording at Wolf Island Studios. You just talked about them. Prior to that, I've read you waxing nostalgically about old studios like Chemical Sounds, where you did uh, the great 2003 album, That Thin Wild Mercury. Uh, Simple question, what makes a space special to record in? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of it has to do with the gear, for sure. If you're somebody that loves uh, the analog gear that allows you to 
you know, create all those atmospherics, but then it's just like being comfortable in a space, you know, like the Wolf Island, the post office studio wouldn't make sense to anybody. It's a very small room. It's a tiny room, but it just has this vibe and you, I mean, you also create the vibe. So interesting that there's a couple things I want to circle back on because you talk about the videos on YouTube about the recording of volume one and what warmed my heart the most going back and watching the dot, the short doc and some of these videos is that the engineer at the, on the LA sessions was a guy named Don Smith and he produced Lois to Lowe's second record, uh, Hallucigenia. Wow. So, you know, and we, we were not, we were really as a band at that point, as a young band, really into our own thing. We had our own thing. We were really driven. So, we didn't jive well with Don Smith, and it's always been a regret of mine. I think the other guys sort of thought he was the, when it was all said and done, we were very excited going into it because his pedigree, you know, what I think what got us the most was his work with the on the first two Cracker records. He'd also done two records with 5440 and I think three records with Tragically Hip, but it was the two Cracker records that we sort of thought, this, this is the band that we want to be so working with this guy would be amazing so he's the engineer on the LA session so it's basically and there's one Harrison interview where where he says like you know when they decide to put the band together he says you know well this all sounds like a great idea but how are we going to find an engineer so fast because Lynn was going to produce right so they found Don Smith and he's in all that video he, he was a lovely man unfortunately he's gone and he, he died young and he died uh, I think um, not a not a under great circumstances, because I think he really kind of, you know, drank himself into a bad place at the end of his life. Um, but he was, uh, he lo loved his experience with the Wilburys, also worked with U2. When we were making Hallucigenia, he found out that he was uh, hired to do the next Rolling Stones album, which I think was Steel Wheels. So he lost interest in us really quickly. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, at the time, the, the feeling was kind of mutual. And uh, I, I kind of I look back on that very sadly now because he and I, because I was the lead guitar player, we would often stay at the end of the day of recording and work on guitar solos. So all the guys would we had a house in Vancouver for I think three months we were there and we had 50 bucks. This is 1991 or 90, 92, I guess. We had 50 bucks a day each of spending money. So you know, in a week, you could accumulate a lot of money. So when there was off time, there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, <laughs> so we had these nights in the studio, probably three nights where it was me, the engineer, it was a guy named Rod, I'd lost track of him, I don't know where he ended up, and Don, just recording guitar solos. And I don't think I've ever been around somebody with so much passion to create sounds. And he was it was infectious because he would just become this whirling dervish at the board, just plugging things in and turning dials and jumping around. And it was incredible. I mean, and so, I mean, I could, I could play you those solos that, that we, we did and whether that would resonate or not, I don't know. But for me, it was like one of the greatest recording experiences of my life. So the, the, when you talk about vibe, his thing was as his career developed was he would bring this vibe kit with him that included like, you know, the right candles and the right incense and the right throw cushions. And he would bring that to the studio. He brought us, I think he brought a smaller version of that to Vancouver when we were there. Like that was, um, that was a bit out of his wheelhouse to come up to the West coast. And, uh, unfortunately he was also at the point at that time dating, um, Lenny Kravitz's bass player who was, uh, 
quite a stunning woman. And uh, he was trying to make every excuse to go back home every few days. And eventually we were like, yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Another quick story. One time he went home for a week to say, say that he wanted to record percussion with Tom Petty's percussion player on our record, which we thought was strange that it was gonna take a week. He came back after the week and there were three songs that had a cowbell on them going clank, 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 clank. So if you're getting, and so I'm going way off here, but this, and he was an important part of this Wilburys experience, but he was, uh, we, we didn't jive as well as we could have. And I think, I think the reality was he was a producer that was all about playing just behind the beat. He wanted you to lay back. And I think at that point, we were still a band that needed to be ahead of the beat all the time. We were still kind of, you know, really mining our post-punk roots. And, and so the, the product, I'm not saying, it's, a, it's still, I think, uh, Hallucinia is a good record, but I don't think the songs were interpreted exactly. There was a, there was a collision of producer and artist, for sure. Um, but seeing him in the Wilbury setting, because the one thing this man loved to do when we would go out to dinner at the end of a studio day or in the middle of a studio day was tell stories. And one of my favorites was about the Wilburys. He said... Um, during those 10 days that they recorded, every night when they finished, they would decide on some restaurant or bar to go to. And the only reason they did that is because they loved the experience of walking in the door one at a time and seeing people go, that's George Harrison, that's Tom Petty. <laughs> and just as the five of them would walk in, because at that point, nobody knew they were working together. So the five of them coming into the same room all at once and people were losing their minds and they can, loved it, apparently. He can said, he said, you imagine? No, I can't imagine. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're, seeing one of those guys walk in for a big music fan would be, holy shit, it's would, Bob Dylan. Would blow your mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And then not having the context of knowing they're working together and making a record, just to think the idea that these five guys are hanging out together and I'm now sitting in the same room as them. It's, yeah. So he loved, he loved telling the stories and we were just uh, probably dumb enough not to be as receptive as we could have been to the stories. And, you know, like, like it, the, the, he would be, the studio we were in was, a, was Vancouver Sound and it was a two floor studio and he had a loft that he did most of his work from upstairs. So we'd be recording bed tracks and he'd be up there and we'd finish a take and you would wait and there'd be a pause a long pause sometimes. And then you would hear him come on the, uh, the talk back and he'd go, let's try it again. <laughs> and then we found out later what he was doing most of the time was he was like on the phone with Tom Petty or somebody. <laughs> Those are all his buddies. He was just like yapping away with them while we were trying to make a record downstairs. Oh man, that's some great stories, man. Hey, well, the album finally came out uh, on October 18th, 1988, and it produced a couple of successful singles and went on to achieve triple platinum certification for sales in the U.S. That's three million copies sold. Uh, and uh, sold more than five million copies worldwide. The album peaked at number three in the Billboard chart, uh, held off, just uh, for trivia fans, held off by Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses and Don't Be Cruel by Bobby Brown. Uh, it was nominated for several awards, won the 1990 Grammy Award for Best Rock Performance by a Duo or a Group. In the UK, the album peaked at number 16. In Canada, it did very well. It showed up on the charts on November the 12th, entering the RPM charts at number 82, reached number one in Canada in January of 89, and remained there until the last week 
of February. So it was very well received in Canada, which jives with my memory of it getting played a lot. And speaking of playing, we're going to take the vinyl out of the jacket and put it on the turntable. And Side One and Cut One is a song that got played a lot. Handle with care. Masterclass in pop songwriting. It's just it's such a great riff. You know, I mean, we could probably uh, sit here for an hour recounting the number of bands we've seen cover that song. Uh, you know, I, it was the it, we played a German festival uh, three years ago called uh, Static Roots, and the last band, or the second last band to play, was a band called Bennett Wilson Poole, or three British musicians who came together to form a you know a quote unquote supergroup, and they ended their set with that, and it was just like complete euphoria in the room while that song was being played. Um, you know, I think you you. Uh, have we have some context about how this album was made, how that song was was made, and how it was originally meant to be? You know, something that probably only saw a limited release. And, and although it's funny, you know, doing some uh, looking around about stories about this album, um, there's a lot of people, and I think this maybe just has to do with the level of of stardom that these five people were at or have always been at. Is that there's enough there's enough people that completely debunk that story. It's like, well, there's no way that that was just a song meant to be. This was completely contrived. It's a contrived story Harrison cooked up to try to, you know, create a backstory for the band. I don't know. It sounds pretty plausible to me. And I guess it doesn't really matter in the end. But the end result was uh, a beautiful piece of music that is like a guitar, a guitar masterpiece. You know, Lynn, Jeff Lynn says there's uh, some songs, he didn't say which, but there's some songs on the record where the five of them playing acoustic guitar in the kitchen actually made the, the album cuts. This one strikes me as one that, that might have been the case because there's a lot of lot of layered guitars in this in this song. It's, it's quite quite nice. Uh, I mean, classic Harrison song, and mm. especially when you look at the lyrics, uh, clearly reflecting back on his time in the Beatles, been stuck in airports and terrorized uh, as they were in the Philippines during their last World II, sent to meetings, hypnotized, Apple, overexposed, commercialized. Like that is you know so Harrison with that little cynical vein and it really comes out in that line when he you know when you you can hear it in his voice oh the sweet smell of success like there's so much for me cynicism in that paul uh tom petty takes credit for writing that line does he he uh, he says that he, he says that was his um the line to me in that song that gets me the most is uh, "I'll clean it up myself," I guess, because that sounds like a that sounds like Harrison's philosophy of life. Like you know, it's like uh, you know, I, I was a Beatle, but like I'm, I'll deal with it myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, so they they uh, here's some inter- a bit of interesting trivia, right? So they give they they of course, if you're not aware, dear listener, they they gave themselves all pseudonyms for the album. So uh, Nelson Wilbury was Harrison, Otis Wilbury was Lynn, Charlie T. Jr was Petty, Lefty Wilbury was Orbison, and Lucky Wilbury was Dylan. Uh, apparently, he took Lucky. He was inspired by the lyrics in his song, Idiot Wind, on Blood in the Tracks. I can't help it if I'm lucky, is a lyric from that. And and here is the... When the album came out, and, and I do remember this in some circles, there was a little bit of a cocked eyebrow, and what are these old farts 
doing? Like, who cares about that? I told you what the popular music was at the time, and it had nothing to do with this type of sound of music. Uh, and you think of them as being really old, but here are the ages when, when they were in doing the recordings. Harrison, 45. Lynn, 40. Petty is 37. Dylan was just about to turn 47. He turned 47 days after the sessions were over. And the oldest, Roy Orbison, was 52. That's not that old. That's not that old. <laughs> and that, I mean, the, the numbers you just read out don't surprise me, except for Roy Orbison, who you know died two months later after they made this record. So he died at the age of 52. And... You know, he had a he had a rough personal life. He had had a lot of loss in his life, and um, you know, I I've I've never ever looked at his age before this experience. So to think that he was fifty two and he died is like what what a tragedy. He died so young. I thought he was a much older man. It, 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 a real tragic side to this whole thing is you know this was a real comeback for him, and uh, and and then. You know, the album was a number one record or a very, very successful record. And then posthumously, the record he was working on with Jeff Lynne came out. And it's just so sad that he, I mean, when you look at all of them, right? I mean, Harrison's gone, Petty's gone, Orbison's gone. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. Uh, now, now, by and large, just getting back to the band, they managed to work at the pace of about a song per day. And I know you've just, we've talked about them, alluded to them. You've just come off some sessions for your next project. So how did the sessions go? And, and what kind of a pace do you set out? Like, is that reasonable to say, we're going to do a song a day? Is that what you try to do? We, we generally approach things a little bit differently just based on time of everybody in the band and how they're available. So we're recording remotely. So, you know, Wolf Island's about three hours from my home and from the other guys as well. So I get the rhythm section out there for probably two groups of three days. So we actually had a great three days. The first time we, I was there for nine days, they were there for the first three. We got uh, nine bed tracks down in those three days, which is amazing. It's full bass and drums for and, and a lot of other things on top of that and sketch of the songs. And then the cool thing about this record is, um, you know, we we hadn't been together at all for almost, you know, 19 months. We hadn't seen each other. We hadn't played together. So consequently, there's a bunch of songs that'll be on this record that they'd never heard before. And I've never done that before. I've never gone into a studio with things that are unrealized. We, you know, usually it's like Lowest to Low was a, a band that loved to rehearse. We went into the studio knowing the songs backwards and forwards. Doesn't mean they didn't change when we got in there. But this time around, we're approaching them very differently. So there's about half the songs on the album I'm putting down like an acoustic vocal sketch and then the band will build it from the opposite direction, which is so exciting to me. Just the idea that, you know, what's going to happen will be completely backwards. So, you know, there's, there's a couple things that I probably have already, you know, have the vocal down that will be the vocal that'll end up on the record and it'll be built around that. And you listen to this story and it's very much the same thing. As you said, they had nine days with Dylan before he headed back out on the road. So they got all the lead vocals and all the backup vocals, not all, they did some backup vocals in England too, but they got them all before those 10 days were up, which means they left LA with some guitar, uh, with a little bit of, uh, 
you know, maybe some percussion on there and some and a bunch of vocals and then built everything backwards, which is such a cool. And, you know, I mean, I don't think the end result's any different. I think it's still, it's still a great record. There's still great arrangements on here. And you also said that, um, which I didn't know, that Petty had gone to uh, England, which makes total sense because there's some guitar that I don't, some electric guitar that I don't think would have happened in L.A., that is definitely him that's on this record. So yeah, yeah. yeah. P- Petty and Orbison were the two. Dylan because he couldn't because he was yeah. out touring. Uh, but Petty and Orbison for sh- or p- pardon me. Uh, no, yeah. Petty and Orbison were yeah. the two who showed up over right. at Friar Park Studios in London when you know Lynn and Harrison were working on it. Um, now. I mean, the lore, and I, I don't know if this worked for every track, but the lore is that they would sit around, play acoustics, work out the, the, the music, the melody, and so on. Then they'd take a break, they'd have dinner, late lunch, whatever you want to call it, and over dinner they'd work out the lyrics, and then they'd go back in and they'd, they'd knock off the, the complete song. So pretty... Uh, Pretty impressive pace. Well, the pace is amazing. And I think, you know, they're professionals driven by the fact that they only had a certain amount of time. Uh, but I think there's the, the stories that are the coolest is, and you, you can hear the improvisational um, sort of, you know, spirit of this record that's on there. But according to this, the lore of this, the, the, there was a lot of times when somebody would be sitting with a pad and lines would be being yelled out from all kinds of places. And I think there's, I think there's, we'll, we'll get into it. And I think the next song's a good example of it, but there's some, there's some places where that maybe didn't <laughs> produce the best result. <laughs> you know, it's funny, when I get ready to talk about something like this with you, I sort of think, like, who's going to care what I think of what Bob Dylan wrote? It's like, I have no, I have no business commenting on anything he wrote. Of course you is, do. I'm a fan, you know, so I can, I can certainly, I've certainly spent, more time, I've probably spent more time listening to Dylan than any other artist in my life, so I think I have some perspective on whether his uh, lyrics are good or not. You are a successful professional (laughs) musician. You have a a soapbox that you can stand on and you definitely, your your opinion has value, absolutely. Um, So let's go to cut two. Yes. And cut two is Dirty World. He loves your sexy body He loves your dirty mind He loves when you hold it Grab him from behind Yeah, so this one, I think, you know, we were talking about improvisation. I think this one, to me, feels like the most improvised track on the record. Um, the second verse, like, you know, uh, you don't need no wax job, you're smooth enough for me. That's like, that's that's like, you know, bridging on later years Mick Jagger lyrics <laughs> but it's but it's a fun song right they got when when uh, she loves your that whole refrain when oh, they I love and that. they cycle through the five vocalists singing the refrain line to each of them and the story in the studio goes that every they, they hadn't planned out how that was going to go but every fifth line is something some Wilbury reference and every time it landed on Orbison and the four guys would crack up every time he sang it, it if you, if you watch the video, uh, if you can, if you can find it online, or if you own the the deluxe copy of the, uh, the right. Traveling Wilburys box, you can see it, and they all start to crack up when when uh, Orbison does the you know Traveling Wilbury, and, and and I swear now when I was listening to the the album this morning, when when I you can hear you you can hear the smile in their voices. Long and 
It's a Dylan Penn tune mainly. Yeah. It was the second song the group worked on. And here's a quote from George Harrison. He says, I mean, a lot of people take him seriously. And if you know Dylan and his songs, he's such a joker, really. And he just sat down and we said, okay, what are we going to do? And Bob said, let's do one like Prince. And he just started banging away. Love your sexy body. Ooh, baby. And it just turned, you know, like into that tune. It sounds nothing like him, Prince. But that track, I mean, I love that track. It's just so funny. George Harrison said that in an interview in 1990. I'm so tired of people saying that Dylan's a bad singer. I'm so tired of that argument, which I completely disagree with. And, you know, as I was doing some uh, looking around and researching about this, there's a lot of people saying, why is Dylan singing so much on this album when you had Orbison there, when you had George Harrison there, when you had Lynn there? It's like, you know, honestly, nobody should nobody should sing words that Dylan, Dylan wrote, except for Dylan. And I think this song... The the lead vocal on this to me really sounds like he's making it up as he's standing up there, which is pretty cool from a fun point of view. I you know I think it's like one of the less successful tracks on the record. Interesting that he put it in the yeah, second spot. Yeah, I love but, it. Well, I, I like it too, but it's just it's you know if you put if you put this, let's just say you printed out this lyric and put it next to you know twenty of Dylan's great songs, you, you would notice a big difference. <laughs> Okay. Well, like I enough. said, who cares what I think? <laughs> well, to, to come up with the lyrics that, and the go around the horn thing you talked about, they poured through a bunch of magazines. Here's another Harrison quote. I just picked up a bunch of magazines and gave everybody a magazine. Uh, and Roy Orbison had Vogue magazine or something like that. I had some copies of Autosport, uh, which I think I gave to Bob Dylan. And then we just started reading out things like five-speed gearbox and stuff like that and just wrote down a big list of things. And then we reduced it down to about 12 ones that sounded interesting we just wrote this random list and had it on the microphone and then we just did the take and whoever sang first they got the first one and then we just sang around the group until we'd done them all and then to your point Jeff Lynn says every time it came around to Roy Orbison, he always got the trembling Wilbury, and it was just the funniest thing. Roy's got the big operatic trembling Wilbury, and we all collapsed every time. And no matter how we rearranged it, he always ended up with trembling Wilbury at the end. What do we do? We just go around. I don't know. I guess. Well, should we have a practice or something? Yeah, let's practice it once. Is that we singing it or just saying it or what? I think we're singing it. Now. To me, this track, more than any of the others, epitomizes the fun they were having, which brings me to, to something about your latest record, uh, which I was listening to today. It's a live album called Live Static Roots, recorded in July 2018 at a festival in Germany. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from you. I, I love quoting the guests. Uh, we played a set... I will literally never forget. As I write this, I can remember everyone's face as I looked around the stage. This was a group of friends making music, loving the connection, savoring every moment of it. Tell me about yeah. that record. It's it's like a I'm getting uh, I'm getting choked up hearing you say that because it's it's true, and also incredibly interesting is that probably one of only two times that that group of people played that group of songs together. Uh, and that was that's fascinating to me as a musician who's been you know like really sort of in set bands my whole life so has this been the longest 
goodbye of your life Has this been the only way you survive? Each night down in a silent rage it Steals your words so you can't engage And you know There is a morning You just can't see So we, we uh, went over to Germany My guitar player Chris Bennett and I went over uh, Chris Brown who's uh, produced uh, produced Jimmy and the Moons, also producing our new record, was there with us, and uh, he was playing keys. And Hadley McCall Thaxton, who's a singer from Atlanta, who sings on Jimmy and the Moon as well, she was there with us. Um, but we picked up a, a drummer named Michael Mormecca from uh, from Northern Ireland, and I'm gonna say we picked up Chris. Chris knew knew him and had done some touring with him before, uh, and. But literally, he was given tapes. That was the first time we'd ever played together. Was that night on the stage in Germany? So that's incredible. And, and you know, there's a little, there's evidence on that record of of that. But I'm not somebody who's like too tied to perfection when it comes to music. I'm really more about feel. And then the the sort of the cherry on top of that whole experience was um, about a month before the festival. The promoter was a, a German a German man named Dietmar. Uh, sent me an email and said, um, "There's a there's an uh, an accordion player from from Dub, sorry from Kilkenny, Ireland, and I knew who he was talking about because he'd played. Not I wasn't there, but he'd played a short short passage at the beginning of the song um, of uh, the Troubadour song on my on Jimmy and the Moon. And he said, "How would you feel if I flew him over to this show and he played with you?" And I was like, "Are you kidding me? This is amazing!" So again, this guy named Gerard Malone shows up. Maloney shows up, and uh, he gets up with us and we have very little rehearsal and just plays the most beautiful, tasteful stuff throughout the whole show. In fact, I held him off stage for the first two songs because there's um, the first two songs we played had a lot of chord changes in them. And I thought, well, maybe let's not push this too far. Let's not push our luck. And having heard the recording, I wish he'd just like, he should have come out before us and started before us. <laughs> it was just so, it was just such, I mean, just very different takes on everything we do, I thought. Like not, not you know, mild, it wasn't, we weren't playing jazz or anything like that, but it was uh, different enough to me that it was worth putting out as a recording. And originally I was going to do it as a, just, you know, something that I put on my website that people could download. And then when the pandemic came around, it was like, oh, you know, like Spotify, they're like clamoring for new material all the time. So we weren't going to make a record in the near future. So getting that out there seemed like a good idea. Yeah, take a look for it. Live Static Roots, yeah. uh, a live album. Now, one more <clears throat> sort of, you know, trivial fact, all things Beatles. Uh, but about the, so... That song, which was supposedly inspired by Prince, you know, oh, your sexy body and That's all awesome. that, uh, very loosely. But Prince, in 2004, shared the stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction night for George Harrison right. with two of the Wilburys, Lynn and Petty. And uh, I remember this and, and watched it again on YouTube just to refresh my memory, but one of the greatest live guitar performances ever captured on film uh, when he played uh, an extended solo at the end of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I mean, what a awesome guitar player. And you can you can find that on YouTube and it is oh. it's as stunning as, as your description is, if not more so. It's, it's quite... Oh, he could play. Yeah, he could he play. Can, <laughs> he could play. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, there you go. Another another guy who's gone way too soon and, and seemingly, you know, 
I mean, I, I know he probably wasn't. I think he was fighting a lot of things, but he just looked like he was in the prime of his life, as you know, as most of these folks, uh, folks do when they go. I mean, you know, nobody knew what Tom Petty was going through until it was too late. And uh, boy, very sad. So let's go to cut three. Yeah. And cut three is rattle. The, so the one thing that uh, they they didn't do well because there was a big deal about not revealing who was in the band. The only thing they uh, they did that gave things away was in the publishing credits. They allowed people to see who was the on the first record of the two, of the two and on volume three they they changed that. They didn't give it away, but we know because of the publishing that this song was attributed to Jeff Lynne, and you don't need to have that written in front of you to know that that's the case. It really, you know, to me, like this could fit, this could fit on any of the mid 70, late 70 yellow records to me. And, you know, it's funny because like when you don't think of the, the way this song kind of rocks, like, but then when you listen to deep cuts on those albums, there's lots of songs that have that sort of same, you know, rock, rock feel to it. Jeff Lynne loves that stuff. And, you know, you also realize how great a singer he is too. Like these are five great singers. I won't hear anybody putting Dylan's voice down again, ever again. I won't. I won't talk. You, you no, know, you just take them. You're a big Dylan guy, aren't you? Huge, yeah. Like, I mean, honestly, like it's funny because the, the years I was listening to Dylan, I'm a I'm an obsessive music listener, and I've changed my patterning lately because because as you know, I host a radio show now, now and uh, it's it's taken me in a different direction and sort of how I listen to music just to try to find new things to play on the show, which is, which is quite exciting. But in those days I had two, my, my daughters were very young and they uh, came to despise Bob Dylan in their early teens because of how much Dylan was on in our house. And they now both love him, like love him. Like, like they, they, they get it now, but I think I just Dylan them to the point of no return when they were young. So I, like, as I said, I'm a very obsessive listener. So Dylan was, my, that sort of formative part of my life where that's, he was the guy I listened to all the time. Favorite Dylan album? Well, so can I give you a fit? I, yes, I can give you an album for sure. Um, my, we, we both, my, you know, we both know my, one of my closest friends was Dave Bookman. And, and one of the things we spoke about constantly was Blood on the Tracks and great record for sure. But I have to say that there's a one song that supersedes that for me. And that is, um, from live at uh, Albert Hall, the version of Desolation Row, like literally, you know, I used to have a uh, a ride to a job I was doing that was probably about, I don't know, 45 minutes on the streetcar each way. And I would listen to that song on repeat for the entire ride, both ways, for weeks on end. I, when something is haunting, I will, you've got me forever. And I think that's a great, that's a great. For example. me, Blood in the Tracks, yeah. I think is by far his best record. And I'm not as much of a Dylan obsessive as you are. And se- second, you're gonna think it's bizarre. No, no, yeah, go. Cool. Nashville Skyline. Oh, it's a great record. Uh, I mean, there's there's so many great records. That's the thing. I mean, I'm a huge fan of uh, John Wesley Harding, and uh, that that's a great, very minimalist record. Um, I'm very excited right now because the next uh, bootleg series is all focused on Infidels, and Infidels has one of the greatest collection of songs that maybe has my least favorite production behind it. And I think Chris Bennett, who's my guitar player, is a 
bigger Dylan fan than me, if that's possible. And he is a collector. So he knows, he knows every bootleg. He knows everything backwards and forwards. And he says that there's going to be versions that are uh, removing some of that 80s shine. That Okay. So a couple of uh, a couple of notes about Rattled, yeah. uh, written mostly by Jeff Lynne, is a real rockabilly. Uh, probably the most distinctive thing about the song is "Think Pretty Woman." That did Orbison with his trademark, you know, has a little growl in there. Uh, the neat thing about it is the percussion. Uh, Jim Keltner, who was the drummer, and the per- says this: I opened the fridge which I'm usually told not to do at other people's homes. I have a tendency to do that. And I saw all this stuff in there. And I thought, oh, good, we're going to eat well this afternoon. And I happened to have my drumsticks in my hand, so I start running them across the grate on the fridge shelf, the spacers that hold the eggs and things. Anytime I see something like that, being a drummer, I always have to run my fingernail across it or something. It created a great sound. So I started playing a groove on it, and I noticed that if I move the eggs back a little moved the enchiladas over to the side a bit. It turned those little things. Somebody said, well, let's overdub it. So it became part of Rattled. They mic'd up the fridge. Uh, Jeff Lynn says this. It started out as a pretty straightforward rockabilly, and uh, Jim had the idea to go into the kitchen, which was a long way for a microphone lead, probably about 80 yards, and to record Dave's fridge. Dave Stewart's fridge. That's where they were. He played the shelves and the bottles, and it made a great sound. And then George Harrison added, that track, that sound, uh, the guitars, the acoustics, and the refrigerator. The fridge, I tell you, it's a great new sound, folks. That's happening. And there's, again, like, you know, God bless YouTube. There's a lot of uh, video of that happening, right? I actually met Jim Keltner once very briefly. And it's, again, I put it on the list of, uh, you know, wishing I was a different person back then (laughs) than I was. um, Because we were making Lusgenia in Vancouver and he was friends with our manager and he showed up at a session and I think we talked to him for like five minutes. He was in town maybe playing with Neil Young. They were doing a show that night. Um, But he showed up and, like, you know, I just didn't have the backstory. And so, you know, that was a lot of years ago. We were bratty kids at that point. uh, Legend. Absolutely. Legend, yeah. Legend. And amazing drummer. Yeah, I mean, like you, you name it, and he's probably played on it. Yeah. So that is cut three. Let's move on to cut four. And last night. She was there at the bar. She heard my guitar. Long and tall, she was the queen of them all. I like to put things in context, and there's a lot of context around this Wilburys record. Um, Full Moon Fever came out one year later. You know, uh, the Orbison record, uh, Mystery Girl, came out one year later. But um, if I'm not mistaken, it was recorded a year before the uh, the Wilburys record. Uh, you know, Dylan's um, Dylan, which is the album that Dylan came out with. Uh, uh, Oh, Mercy, of course, came out in 89. There's a lot of really good music happening around that time. The, the lead up to that for Dylan wasn't as good. But so then taking the context one step further, I kind of equate this song last night with the song Zombie Zoo on Full Moon Fever, which is not maybe not complimentary, but then I will say one thing about it. Uh, Tom Petty's delivery of lyrics and delivery of a verse is so good, it really cuts so nicely against that... Uh, you know, really poppy arrangement that this song has that, you know, just, it's the kind of thing that 
it's the kind of thing, you know, as far as Tom Petty goes, it's not the music that I love of his. So let me, I'll say that, and then you can, you can put your two cents in. No, I mean, I don't mind the song. Um, I don't mind it, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, I don't think it's the strongest cut in the album, but it's, it's, yeah, it's a great Tom Petty song. It was supposed to be the second single off the record. Really? Uh, after Handle Me With Care. Yep, very catchy, I can see that. Uh, but it was changed after the death of Roy Orbison, which was, uh, by the way, it was December 6, 1988. He died of a heart attack, if you weren't aware of that. And instead, they released In Light of that, uh, the more suitable end of the line uh, as the second single. Uh, here's a quote. Uh, Tom got to have one exclusive co-write with Wilbury's patriarch Roy Orbison on volume one. And it's, according to this a guy named Ron Hart in Billboard magazine, the best song on the album after Handle With Care. And while Petty wrote the lyrics, he saved the best lines for Orbison, particularly the knockout punch delivered in the fifth verse, I asked her to marry me and pulled out a knife. The party's just beginning. She said, your money or your life. That's a good line. You know, it's just that, it's that bouncy, it's just, it's, it doesn't speak to me in the way that a lot of petty stuff does, which is, you know, more behind the beat, more down in the groove. And, uh, but, you know, like I said, there's his voice is at its peak right at this period of time. So he's, uh, yeah, he's doing some nice yeah, and stuff. And this there. is just before his his certainly his commercial career high watermark, which was Full Moon Fever, which yeah. we'll talk about a little bit later. Some nice sax work from Jim Horn. Yeah, this, uh, that was all recorded in uh, in England, as I gather. But yeah, there's he's played some nice stuff throughout the whole record, actually. So on this album, these songs all about collaboration, uh, be that in the actual writing or maybe just the arrangements and the playing. And and I read about an interesting collaboration you had. Mm with a guy who goes by the name of, uh, and correct me if I'm getting his first name wrong, Sagan Pierce. Oh, Sagan, yeah. Sagan Pierce, yeah. uh, on whose debut album you play in a couple of tracks. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to collaborate with him? What was the lure? He's an incredibly gifted writer with an incredibly amazing, you know, like he's not in, in the same, uh, same tenor as uh, Roy Orbison, but he has that kind of voice. And so... When he started making his record, he asked a bunch of people to come in, and I got to do some. I got to do some lowest of the low style lead guitar on that record, which I haven't done in a while. That was very exciting. And then I got to do some uh, backup vocals on on a song called "Great Lake Love," which is uh, one of my favorite songs from the last five years. Um, and we actually played it live this weekend at a big outdoor. Not big. It was a it was a big place with a small crowd just to try to you know be socially distanced. But we had a wonderful night playing in the, a field in Stouffville on. Uh, this past weekend. But bottom line, and I guess the gist of my question is, yeah. is so for a collaboration with you, much like the Wilburys, there's got to be some kind of a personal friendship connection there. You're not a gun for hire. I'm some, not a gun for hire. No, no, do, do you ever get people calling no. up saying, hey, yeah, you know, you have no, come in and play some guitar for me in a session? People, no, because I'm not that kind of player. I mean, people will, I mean, no, it did happen back in the day with Los Low, but it's still, it's like, it's not my forte by any means. I think, I think if someone's asking me to play on their record, it's because they like my style, the style that I play, like they, they want that kind of style. I, I think one thing I'm, as a guitar player anyways, I'm very good at creating alternate melodies inside a song. I think I'm, that's that's my forte. I'm not, you know, I'm no Eddie Van Halen. I'm no, I'm no anybody as far as being a lead guitar player, but I was quite good at creating melody where melody wasn't before. So I think that's where it comes from. But, you know, I mean, the, this whole discussion we're having about the Wilburys is talking about making music with your friends. And I think that is the great experience. It's, it's, it, it takes on, 
it takes on some, a life of its own when you're in a studio and you're you spend you know you don't go to you don't go to a studio for an hour you're usually there for a long period of time and in that time you relax and things start to happen and you have conversations and you have fun and you drink and you you know you do all the things that you you know imagine people might do in a studio and it's just a great experience it's like you know i mean I love everything about music, but my favorite part of, you know, I mean, writing is a very satisfying thing, especially when you're writing a lot like I am in this part of my life. It's very satisfying. But there's nothing that beats recording. It's just, there's just something that, like, if you're open to it, which I totally am every time, just, and, and trust the people you're with and trust that they care as much as you do and they're going to bring something to it, like, you just get magical stuff happening. Yeah. Let's finish off side one. Last right. cut on side one. Uh, to me, the standout track on the album, Not Alone Anymore. You always said that I'd be back again. I think, I think without this track, this would be a good album. I think with this track, it's a great record. And, you know, Jeff Lynn had just come off doing an album with, with Roy Orbison and clearly had some perspective on how to write for this man's voice. But he hit it out of the park. Like, it's just, it is the, it's a vocal performance for the ages. Like, this is a great singer. This Roy Orbison's a great singer. But this has got to be up there with some of his best. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful vocal. And, you know, the thing that I've noticed in the last uh, couple of weeks listening to this, spending a little more time with this album, is that this is the one song on the album where the backup vocals don't sit front and center. They, they see, seem like they made a conscious decision to push them back, whereas backup vocals are very front and center on most of this record. And they didn't need to on this one. It's such a, it's so nice. It's so nice. I mean, you think, you think this is probably one of the last things he recorded too, because, you know, he died two months later. So that's incredibly sad, but what a beautiful, what a beautiful ending. It is a, uh, I'll give you the backstory. It's, it's, there's quite a story to the song. Uh, and, and it's a testament to the production skills of Jeff Lynne. And of course, the towering vocals of, of the late uh, Roy Orbison with that, that beautiful, high, strong voice. But Here's Lynn, uh, a quote talking about it. I couldn't stand the way Not Alone Anymore was. He wrote the song. Because I knew it was a great tune. It just wasn't happening, these chords. It was just played like a 12-bar almost. Like it was, so it was G, you just go G, C, D, and that was all it was, all the way through, except for the chorus part. Not that bit, the bit Not Alone. Uh, we kept that bit. But the bits I changed, I just had the bass, drum, and voice. And I took that home to my little studio, and I just played rhythm guitar to that so that there's no bass to bother about and there's no other instruments. And that's just how it came about. It's the only time I've ever actually done that to that extent. Like completely changed the internal movements of the song and just left the bass, drum, and voice. And it worked absolutely brilliantly because suddenly it became one of the better songs. That's an interview that he did with the podcast uh, Soda Jerker in October of 2019. Um, do you understand what, like, it sounds to me as though 
he had a song there. I mean, you're the musician and the producer, so but it sounds to me like he stripped the melody completely away except for bass, drum, and voice and made up a new melody. Is that what he did? I don't think he changed the melody. I think he just changed what's underneath the melody. Um, the story that I saw about this, which is very similar, is that he took it home one night and just wrote new chords to go along with the song that Roy was singing. And that's interesting, you know, I, I, to have context on it, I'd have to know what it was originally to understand what, yeah. how, how much it changed. Like, you know, but he's saying 12 bars, so if it's 12 bar, it might have, do, 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 you know, might have just been following a very strict pattern. So there's, you know, the thing about melody is you can sing mel- a certain melody over a lot of different movements in, in chords. So he found something different that he thought worked a lot better, and apparently uh, the guys did too. Um, yeah, that's... That's pretty cool stuff. And can I tell you a quick Don Smith story? Uh, because um, because I was looking around to see if there's anything. One thing that happened when Don Smith died, uh, I got a message from a friend in LA, and then tried to find anything written about it that that he that he died, and there was just nothing, which really surprised me because if you look at his list of credits, it is you know probably one of the longest. Like David Lowry calls him the greatest American producer ever, and I don't think he's so I don't think he's so far off the beaten path, especially in the type of music that you know we love, which is that sort of Americana that Americana is part of the, part of the world, um, but. I, I wrote to David because I'd, we'd done some shows together back in the day, and I said like this, like like you know, what what's going on? Because like I know Don died, and like there's just nothing about it. And he, that's when he told me that he had a pretty unfortunate end of his life, just with with uh, you know burning bridges, I guess, and stuff like that. But this week I came across this thing that David Lowry had wrote um, called The World is a Boring Place Now That You're Gone. And it was just this story. Apparently he has this series that he writes about his friends. And this was like number 45, I think, or something like that. Uh, it was a story about Don Smith. And he tells a story about making Gentleman's Blues, which is uh, the third or fourth Cracker record. And Smith's producing it. And the, he takes it to a studio in LA and um, D- David and Johnny are showing up later. And... David walks into the studio and he expected to see Ben Montench there from, from Petty's band because he knew he was playing keyboards on, on the record, but he didn't expect to see Mike Campbell there. So this is a beautiful story about musicians and George Harrison is a, sim- a similar musician apparently and, and we can get into that too. But um, So basically what it done, Don Smith, had, there was one song on the record that they, the guys thought was a deep album cut and Don Smith heard something else and he took it and he stripped away all the guitars that Johnny had done and... Mike Campbell came in and wrote a whole new line for it. And David Larry describes sitting there going, I don't want to be here when, you know, Johnny walks in to hear this. And uh, Johnny eventually shows up. Johnny Hickman, who's the guitar player of Cracker. And uh, uh, Don puts the track on. And David's looking at Johnny's face, wondering, you know, when he's going to blow up. And Johnny gets up, slaps Don on the back and goes, that is way better than what I did. Isn't that like, like, like that's such, such an emotional story for me. Like when a, a musician relinquishes yeah. their ego and realizes this is better than the song. And then if you want to take it one step further, Harrison, like Paul McCartney on the McCartney 123 tells a story about uh, when Clapton played lead on While well, Michael Car Gently Weeps. And he says, that's the musician George Harrison was. He said, he was the most giving musician you'll, you'll ever meet. Like he was just like, Oh, let's get my friend to play on this. This is my friend. Like, let's get him to play on this song. Like, and the opportunity you're giving a musician who's coming up at that point, I'm sure Clapton was nowhere near as big as the Beatles at that point, on his way to being, but um, 
was like saying, you're going to play lead guitar on a Beatles record. Like, that's incredible. Those, those, those stories just, those stories break me up because like that's, that's to me what music's all about is trying to find your comfort level and being giving at all times. Never ever saying, well, no, I'm so married to this part. And as a young musician, that's hard. When you get older, it's easier, but it's hard. Yeah, well, humility is a wonderful trait. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. Um, one other a cute story, so because that's that's the big Roy Orbison cut on the album. And just, he was, I hate to use the term, I won't use it. He was the special ingredient to the band, I think, that made the Traveling Wilburys unique. Um, So Harrison, Lynn, and Petty drove to Anaheim to see Orbison perform at the Celebrity Theater. And they went in before the show to try to recruit him to be in the Wilburys before they'd gone in to do this this album. In Petty's description, Orbison performed an unbelievable show during which we'd punch each other in the arm and go, he's in our band, he's in our band. We were all so excited. Uh, and you know, there, he was you know, the great Roy Orbison. Now, uh, before we close out side one, uh, there'd been some hope that maybe the Wilburys would tour even after the death of Roy Orbison. And that's a, that's a different topic. Would that have been a good idea? Something Harrison, even after Orbison had died, Harrison would publicly muse on that topic on occasion. As we record this, uh, there is some limited touring starting to take place in parts of the world coming out of the pandemic. But during the pandemic, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, it called for some innovation to play live. And <laughs> one of the most curious things was you hooked up with your old lowest of the low bandmate, Ron Hawkins, and you played at a drive-in. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> you know, it was it was a great it was a great day because one thing that we haven't had the the experience much of lately is just spending a day together, right, and hanging out and practicing songs and you know doing sound checks, and then you know, once the sound check was done, we just sat by Lake Ontario because it was down on the Ontario Place grounds. We sat by the lake for like you know two and a half hours, just just talking, which was great. That was a great experience. And then the show itself was, was, was way cooler than I thought it would be. So you get a parking lot full of cars and instead of applause at the end of a song, you get honking horns. Um, but as it went on and, you know, I really have to, I don't remember his name, but I really have to hand it to the sound person that night because he, he did some beautiful work on the sound. It was such a great sounding stage and a great sounding venue. And whenever you're playing on a stage where the sound, you know, just surrounds you like it did that night you can't help but do a do a good show so it was a lot of fun you know it's like it's not i think we both walked away from it going yeah like if i never do this again it's not going to be the end of the world but it was certainly a fun unique experience and i think the people that were there it was it did feel even though you know you only barely saw anybody you could see them through the windshields maybe but um there was still this there still was this it's the same thing i've done a lot of um online shows over the pandemic and you you do you develop some sort of connection and that's, well, it's happening live. The online shows, I don't recommend watching them afterwards. I think that's, 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 it's rote by that point, but the, when it's happening live and people are, you know, you can see the comments flying on Facebook, there is this real connection with you where you feel like, you know, I'm not alone right now. I'm not alone anymore. (laughs) There you go. I tied it back to the Wilburys record. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You did indeed. Uh, Nicely done there. 
Uh, we're going to jump into side two in just a moment, but right now I'd like to just take a moment uh, to ask a bit of a favor of you. If you're enjoying this podcast, could you consider making a donation to support the production costs of the podcast and so that I can keep it uh, commercial-free? All you have to do is head to the website, romicast.com and click on the Support the Walrus button. I'll give you a shout-out in the next episode if you are uh, so kind as to make a donation. When you're at the page, you can also navigate to the page Hire Paul. Uh, That'd be me. Have you ever thought of a promotional podcast for your next album release, your next tour, book, art exhibition? If you have, I'm your guy, an experienced podcast producer who loves the arts and will work with you to produce a podcast that will showcase your talent. If you're interested, you can get in touch via the website and we'll go from there. Thanks. Also at the website, you can find every episode of the Walrus Was Paul series. The best way to not miss an episode is to hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you get your podcasts and you will be notified whenever a new episode drops. So, to side two of The Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1, and we start off with a very Bob Dylan tune, uh, (laughs) croaked out in his best Dylan voice, Congratulations. Congratulations For breaking my heart Congratulations For tearing it all apart Congratulations You finally did succeed Congratulations For leaving me in the I think need. however you want to describe it it's perfect for what he writes and like you know i mean he's and you know i get the whole whatever it was like mid late 80s part of his career where he purposely was you know mispronouncing every word i guess i get people being pissed about pissed about that but him singing like you know desolation row by himself on the stage at the royal albert hall is one of the greatest moments in music history as far as i'm concerned uh you know i mean congratulations it's it's a it's a nice song i think this is one where they really, you know, collaborated on the vocal first, and that was the the main thrust of it. And he's throwing, he's you know, peeling off lines. Some of them are good, some of them aren't. Um, you know, I feel like that what what came what came just before this for him was not his best work um, in his in the canon of his career. What came after this was some of his best work, like the '89 album was fantastic, and then the next one, which was with 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 uh, Lam Ma, was really good too. So, do you think this re-energized him? Yeah, you know, I gotta, I gotta figure something happened to all of these guys because I think re-energized possibly, but I think there was something, something that came out of the collaboration that maybe instilled a bit of fun back into the making of music. And there's a, a just across the board a great collection of work right after this album got got produced. So that could be an accident, but I tend to believe it's not. I think music, music's very much like a, you know, it's like a snowball, right? When it, if it's rolling down a hill, it gets bigger and bigger if it's moving fast, so. Uh, Matt Hurwitz, a journalist, uh, wrote in a, a piece in November of 2007. Uh, he said, we were right in the middle of getting the sounds. This is a quote from Don Smith, uh, the engineer. We were right in the middle of getting the sounds for last night. And Bob starts coming up with the rhythm for congratulations. And they went, did you get that on tape? 
And Don said, oh yeah, I got it. And that was how they started to build the song. Uh, a reviewer in retrospect said, Dylan's congratulations, a guy named Philip J. Reed writing in Noise to Signal. Uh, Dylan's Congratulations is definitely one of the finest songs of his career. It's an I hate you, but I love you, but I hate you song the way only he can write one. And the fact that he could write something like this overnight and record it the next day is one more testament to his career-long quality streak. Dylan is proud of the song. He occasionally plays it in concert. I have ne- I've seen Dylan play probably... 11 times and I've never seen him play this song so that's that's cool I mean this latter part of his career which uh, the last time I saw him was in Oshawa which was fantastic uh, he's really sticking to the same set list every night these days or it was before the pandemic anyways um, but you know it's Dylan has a, a small part of his catalog that is um, the songs are really focused on the poor hard done by white man <laughs> this this one kind of falls into that category uh, yeah, so you know, I I think it fits the vibe of the of the record really well. I I don't dislike it. I like it. As you know, I'm a huge Dylan fan. Um, I put this in the bottom third for my. If we're are we ranking? Is that part of this? No, that no part of this if, podcast. If, if you're the guest. If you would like to rank, you are uh, you are welcome to rank. Okay, so heading for the light. Uh, very George Harrison. Hundred percent. Hundred and ten percent. This to me could be on. Uh, I mean, it could be an outtake from the Cloud Nine sessions. Well, I think yeah. To me, it's, it could have been one of the better songs on Cloud Nine too. It's a, it's a wonderful song. It shows this man's uh, capacity for melody. Like it's just a, it's just the way the melody moves up and down and around the around the chord progression. It's so beautiful. <laughs> McCartney, I don't know if you've uh, uh, watched the McCartney One Two Three series yet, which is on uh, Disney Plus. It's a series with him and Rick Rubin talking about the Beatles, talking about McCartney's solo stuff. It's fantastic. We watched it uh, last week, and it's every minute of it's it's a completely exciting, especially if you like the inner workings of the recording process in the studio. But he talks about George Harrison as a songwriter and says that he believes that in the early days he just wasn't interested in songwriting. It wasn't wasn't something he even cared to do and then he said he kind of paused and he says but he went on to become one of the greats of all time and that is 100% true like you think of even in you know I mean um, Frank Sinatra calls something the greatest song of all or called something the greatest song of all time like even the songs he wrote in the Beatles Here Comes the Sun While My Guitar Gently Weeps Within You Without You those are amazing songs Uh, you know All Things Must Pass what an album and then selected pieces over his whole solo career like you said when we was fab that's fantastic this song is fantastic handled with care like you know i think you know people would probably have to reluctantly admit it's one of the greatest band songs in history like 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 i said you i'm hard you'd be hard for us to find a cover band that wasn't doing that song in their repertoire he's he's very you know he's very for me as a as a you know a non-songwriter. This just in, I don't write songs. I, I interview songwriters. I would say yet. Uh, <laughs> but 
His early stuff, uh, and some of his later stuff, but his early stuff in particular all had a bit of a, you know, and I use this word a lot with George Harrison, had a real cynicism, vein of cyn, you know, don't bother me, you know, just go away, right? That was yeah. one of the first songs that he wrote with the Beatles. Tax Man. He was pissed, you know, yeah. pissed off. Great song, but you know, tax uh, was another one. Um, it's only a northern song. Yeah, was another. So he, he had a bunch of those, and I don't really, I don't. I would concur with McCartney if 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 you're paraphrasing what he said correctly. Is that he didn't start to come into his own until right near the end of the Beatles. Even while my guitar gently weeps is a great song. It's a good song, very good song. But to me, something. Is a great song. Yeah. Here, here comes the sun. Is a great song. That's like, I mean, maybe one of the greatest chord progressions in the history of chord progressions. And then when you get on to all things must pass, it was just like he'd taken a laxative to just yeah. empty out all of this, all of these songs that he had, you know, that he'd had backed up for years. And I mean, I, you know, can, it would be tough for the, you know, looking back, and many others have talked about it, but George Martin took some stick for, you know, basically not paying enough attention and working hard enough on the George Harrison songs with the Beatles, and it was something that Harrison carried a bit of a grudge for. Um, but when you look back on it, hmm. could you blame George Martin? You, you've got John Lennon and Paul McCartney walking in with the songs that they wrote. And George Harrison, the stuff he wrote with the Beatles right up until the end, you know, when it changed, wasn't in the same league, I don't think. What do you think? Well, I so as far as how they treated them by song, I think history would prove otherwise from me anyways. I think uh, the arrangements on, I mean, the arrangement on Here Comes the Sun is transcendent. Like it's just- But, but that's at the end. That's at the end, yeah. Uh, so early on, yes, true. And everything you said about, you know, the fact that you have Lennon and McCartney in the room, um, you know, I can relate a little bit. I was in a band with a great songwriter, and I think the hardest experiences I've ever had was bringing a song into that band. It wasn't, it was never a pleasant experience. And maybe he experienced the same things. Maybe, and maybe it was innate. Maybe it wasn't, I'm sure like Paul McCartney and John Lennon weren't saying this is crap. They probably were encouraging friends. But when you're faced with, that wall of greatness, sometimes it's hard to, you know, peek over it and, and try to do something of your own. I also think like, you know, when they went to, when the Beatles went to India, his sort of, you know, his coming into being an enlightened person really changed his perspective and changed how he wrote, changed how he thought, uh, you know, right up to, I think one of the later interviews he did um, with uh, Jeff Lynn talking about Roy Orbison having passed and, and uh, Harrison says, well, no, he's still here. Like, it's just, you know, he's still here. He's like, it's, it's within you, it's without you. And he actually quotes his own lyrics. Uh, great story behind the song. Uh, very heavy analysis. Uh, theologian Dale Allison. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Love There That's Sleeping the Art and Spirituality of George Harrison. And he proposes that this song, Heading for the Light, uh, serves as a resolution to a song called Fish on the Sand. That's on cloud nine. And Harrison in Fish on the Sand admits to religious doubt. Uh, in Heading for the Light, he sings of having been blue and lonely, lost in the night, close to the edge, while journeying aimlessly and unable to see his deity. 
uh, and Allison's interpretation of this, the narrative effect of these and other lyrical images is as though he were in a confessional and the listener is his confessor. So uh, the very spiritual George Harrison song. Hey, just to, uh, to flip back to, uh, you know, I'm sure you probably played the odd George Harrison song and maybe the odd Bob Dylan song on your radio show. Yeah. Uh, oh, you it, know what? I've never played a Harrison song. Now, you're, now you've given me a challenge. For you, you know, you've got to. Next week. Uh, a weekly radio show, uh, dear listener, that you should look for. It's called Northern Wish. Um, and it's on Mondays at 2 o'clock Eastern Time. If you are in the Muskoka area of Ontario, Canada, it's on 88.7 FM, Hunter's Bay Radio. For most of you listening, uh, including a, a sizable number of people in the UK who listen, uh, go to muskokaradio.com and you can stream the show. How did you become a DJ? How did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm not actually sure. I mean, you know, so I've had a long relationship with Muskoka. I, I worked uh, for five years when I was a kid on Lake of Bays. And that led to a lot of friendships up there and led to you know a, a, a love for the area. Um, and never owning my own cottage, I, uh, I made some really good friends that have uh, nice guest houses. So I spent, I spent a lot of time up there. And you know, I started getting, when, when we're up there, I started listening to Hunter's Bay Radio a lot. And it really, it really got me because they seem to let, you know, which is what I do, they seem to let their DJs have the run of, you know, tailoring their own shows. It's community radio, but it's community radio with a real kind of indie spirit to it, which I, which I quite like. Um, I did a couple, they, they have a show called uh, My Tunes, which is musicians going on for an hour and, and, you know, programming a playlist of their favorites. I did that a couple times and then I said to, uh, the station manager, you know, I was like, if anything ever comes up, let me know because I really enjoy doing this. Um, and about three months later, he called me and said, you want to do a radio show? And I was like, oh. And, you know, I'm 35 episodes into it now. So, you know, over, over half a year and it's been a blast. It's been a blast. I think I said earlier in the podcast that I'm a very obsessive music listener and I'll tend to stick with one or two things for a long period of time. And this has caused me to change the way I listen because I have discovered how much I like hearing what people are doing that's brand new. And so, you know, we live in a world now where we have a lot easier access to everything. So, you know, my mandate is to play a heavily Canadian um, playlist, but I can certainly step outside of that, and I do. And I just... The only thing I, I, I occasionally have, you know, you were one of my guests at one point, and I think you're going to come on again and, and talk about season two of the podcast. Um, but beyond having the odd guests that we get a little bit deeper in and play some, some uh, you know, deeper tracks and things like that, it's just really playing music I love and doing what we're doing now, telling stories about how music gets made, how song. I really, I really think I focus more on how songs get written. And, I, I really, yeah. uh, you know, hand on heart, uh, I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's on it. Uh, where where I live, it's at two o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time, and uh, that's I'm usually at my desk doing some work, and I'll click it on, and I'll just have it on while I'm doing my work, nice. and it's it's a just a it's a really nice little break. Yeah, because uh, how long is it? It's like an hour. It's an hour. It's yeah, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an hour. So I'll grab a coffee and I'll sit there and I'll just listen for a bit, and uh, the, usually there's uh, you know the 
oftentimes as a musician I know and they'll come on and they'll talk a little bit about their music and then you'll play some of it and it's, it's really nice so look for it uh, it's uh, muskokaradio.com is the place you can find it or if you're up in uh, what locals refer to as the boonies up in the Muskoka area of Ontario Canada you can find it on 88.7 FM Hunter's Bay Radio. Yeah, and yeah, I'm, and I'm sure you have with the podcast. I love hearing from people afterwards, and I hear from all kinds of people. It surprised me how many people are listening out, outside of the Muskoka area. You learned this early in my yeah. broadcasting career. You never know who's listening yeah, exactly. or, where or where they are listening, and that's the great thing about the medium. It's exciting. Uh, so we go to the next track on the album, and it is Margarita. It was in Pittsburgh, late one night I lost my hair, got into a fight I rolled and tumbled, till I saw the light Went to the Big Apple, took a bite Right, like, uh, yeah, that's so... I was going to ask you, like, where did where do you think this uh, 80s homage intro comes from? Like, where did that, that one throws me on this record with that sort of keyboard build at the beginning? You know, like a lot of stuff happened in the, uh, in the early 80s that, you know, especially Dylan did a lot of stuff that had that vibe that was a weird part of his career. But it's, it stands out on the record for that reason. Um, but then you bring in what I suspect is Patty playing acoustic because it just comes in with that real, like almost like a wildflower sound. Chinga, chinga, yeah. ching, yeah, yeah, yeah. And some cool stuff that Dylan sings in the song. Um, you know, I think it's it, like to me, this is a deep cut on the album. Um, I, you know, it seems like I've got, I think I have three that are firmly in my bottom third of the record. I think this is one of them, but. But you know, I mean, you're gonna. I like. I love that you're gonna give me a bit of history on well, this. Well, it's written by all the Wilburys, but the biggest contribution you alluded to it was from Tom Petty. Yes, uh, it was the B side of "Handle with Care" when uh, when that single came out. Right. This is George Harrison talking about it. The ching 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 on "Margarita." It's back to my roots. It's skiffle, really. Mm -hmm. But also, I was trying to think of a song that would feel a bit like a Bob Dylan tune. So I got on the chord D. All guitar players would know that. And you go, ching, chinga, ching, ching. And that was that, really. After a half an hour, we knocked it into shape. And George Harrison said that uh, in the Traveling Wilburys so, book. So that's Harrison saying that he, he came up with that chord progression then? Uh, well, it sounds to me as though, yes, yeah. He, uh, he, he started on the D. Uh, the other great little bit of trivia, uh, according to Jeff Lynn, there was a bit of, a little, there's a little bit of Jeff Lynn synthesizer on the song, which I'm, I'm sure was added over at the uh, Friar Park Studios, Henley on Thames. Mm -hmm. And to Lynn's recognition, that was Danny Harrison's idea to put a little bit of synthesizer oh, so, on there. Well, Dan so there you go. That's, that's what I'm talking about is the intro because the intro starts with a very 80s sounding synth part, which is, a, is quite out of place on the record. So that's interesting that, that Danny brought that in because he would have a very different perspective well, on music. But the funny thing is, I think it's more... Lynn than, Har than Danny Harrison. Danny Harrison, I looked it up, would have been 10 years old when they were doing this. So. Yeah, but he's the son of uh, son George. Son of George, so maybe, maybe. I'm sure he had some instruments around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he had access. So we go to the second last cut, and uh, written but mainly by Dylan, with Tom Petty helping out in there, 
Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Yeah, well, that's, so this, I mean, this is a Dylan song to me. And it's like, I think a bit of a, a look to the near future for him. Tweeter and the Monkey Man were hard up for cash. They stayed up all night selling cocaine and hash. To an undercover cop who had a sister named Jan. For reasons unexplained, she loved the Monkey Man. I did see one place where it was written that said this this was either written as an homage or a parody of one of Springsteen's longer songs, which I find a bit strange because Dylan has a ton of longer songs that have, you know, this very storytelling style that exists in Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Um, The difference with this one and a lot of the songs that Dylan writes is Dylan doesn't often have that sort of distinct chorus. And the distinct chorus really makes this, you know, I mean, I can see where somebody could say, okay, there's a bit of a Springsteen thing, because Springsteen always comes back to the chorus. That, I mean, the, the Springsteen is a chorus writer. Dylan really isn't in the storytelling thing, but this cool, it's a cool song. And I think, as I said, a, a look to the future because it still has that great, you know, Dylan story, like like uh, Tangled Up in Blue or Desolation Row or, uh, you know, uh, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. But... Then it goes to this chorus where all the guys get to chip in and, and the walls come down. It's, it's, it's great. It's fantastic. Uh, Tom Petty says there was you know, some, um, it's, you know, I mean, the song is set in New Jersey. Lyrical references to uh, Thunder Road, Mansion on the Hill, Highway 99. So, you know, Springsteen yeah. song. Petty says, quote, we weren't trying to mock anybody. Dylan said he wanted to get a song in New Jersey and we use references to Springsteen songs. He meant it as praise. So here is the story to the song according to George Harrison. Tweeter and the Monkey Man is like uh, was like really Tom Petty and Bob. They were sitting, and Jeff and I were there too. We're just sitting around the kitchen, really. Uh, for some reason, they were talking about all this stuff, which didn't make much sense to me. I think it was that, you know, that Americana kind of stuff. And we got a tape cassette and put it on and then transcribed everything they were saying and wrote it down. And then Bob sort of changed it anyway, didn't he? We wrote it all on a bit of paper and then he changed it. Uh, to me, it was just amazing watching it. And here's a testament to Dylan. It had very little to do with right. He had very little, or George had very little to do with writing the tune at all, uh, except that Jeff and I uh, remembered the bits that he'd forgotten. And that became the chorus part. So the walls, you know, when the walls came down. But it was just fantastic watching him do it because he sang, he had one warm up himself, and then he did it for real on take two. And the difference was the rest of us had more time and Bob had to go on the road. He couldn't come over and do any more vocals for us. So we had to get them immediately. And on take two, he sang Tweeter and the Monkey Man right through. And then he changed some of the lyrics while he was singing it. Maybe in about four places, he changed a couple of lines, improved them, and dropped in the new lines. And that's it. It was done and written. And the way he writes the words down, he says, very tiny, like a spider's written it. You can hardly read it, but you know it's the amazing thing. Whether people like his style of singing or not, it's unbelievable watching how he did it. So that's Harrison talking about watching Dylan yeah, doing this. Yeah, that just—I mean—that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up just hearing that story. One warm uh, up, and then the take yeah. that well, you hear on the record. I mean, just you just know when it comes to Bob Dylan, 
and you know this is a this is a Beatles podcast, and we maybe spent more time talking about Dylan, but you know that's fine. We're we're doing the traveling wheelberries today, um, but there's something beyond just being a good songwriter going on there. There's something myopic in a vision that allows him to, you know, like just write and you know it, even even try to consider that man remembering all the words he's written in his lifetime like that. Stop and think about that, and it, it drives me nuts just thinking about it. Um, I, one thing you said there was very interesting, though, because it said we reminded him of the parts he forgot, which was the chorus. <laughs> That's amazing because you know this is a Dylan song with a chorus. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe he didn't forget it. Maybe he just said, maybe he just didn't want it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, two of my favorite Dylan songs from uh, from Blood in the Tracks, uh, and you know they're the they are. Gordon Lightfoot does some songs like this as well, but they are. I mean, a classic ballad yeah. does not have a chorus. Yeah, a ballad just tells a story, yeah. and and the the history on that is that back in ancient times, that is how people spread news and told stories. Yeah. In songs, yeah. uh, so the, you know, and a great example is we're getting off topic here, but you listen to the wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald, and that tells you the story of a ship yep. that ran into trouble and sank. You, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have to know. So, and you listen to uh, "Tangled Up in Blue" or "Simple Twist of Fate," a couple of great Dylan story songs, and they are yep. just a story. Yeah, uh, and that is a bro. Now, you're a, a songwriter. Um, and I, I don't know if you do this or not, but when you're sitting writing a song because you're such a Dylan aficionado, do you ever try to channel him? Do you ever try to go in your head, I wonder how Dylan would word this or I wonder what Dylan would do? Uh, I've certainly stolen ideas and like sort of little mini snippets of lyrics from him. Well, I mean, I named, I named a record that Thin Well Mercury. That's a Dylan quote. Yeah, that's, what it, that's when he was asked to describe the sound he was trying to get on... Uh, on Blonde on Blonde, he said, well, that Thin Wild Mercury sound, and said it like, you know, that was some sort of, <laughs> something that people would understand. Yeah, I didn't um, know that, it's a great title. Yeah, it's, uh, so that, that was a direct, a, a direct bit of thievery, um, not from a song, from just a, a quote from him. Um, I, there's a song that's on, uh, not on the vinyl version, but on the uh, digital version of Jimmy and the Moon called uh, By Her Side, and that was as close as I've come to being very conscious about writing like Dylan and and not so much lyrically, just in the form. I tried to write and I did. I wrote a song. I'm very big on having to have a bridge that takes you into the last chorus. I do that a lot. And this time I just thought I want to build a form of chords and then just repeat that six times. And then we're going to have five verses, lyrics, sorry, five, four, four verses, a guitar solo, and then an out over the sixth sixth form. And I've, it's become one of the favorites in our show. So, you know, um, I don't often... What, what's nice about, about songwriting as you, as you do it more and more, you can be very, very uh, prescriptive in what you do. You, can, you get to the point where you can go, I want to write a song about this and it's got to have this, this, and this, and then I, I can be successful and do that, which is quite exciting. Um, but I haven't gone there a lot. I think I just steal a lot of little ideas from Dylan. It just seeps into, you know, I mean, like, I mean, for better, or for worse, when we're doing long shows, like when we're doing like, you know, three hours of club, a club show, we'll throw in probably three Dylan songs just over the course of the day because it's fun. Yeah. 
I would never, I'll never record it. Well, that's not true. I recorded a Dylan song for uh, the live album, but that's only because Hadley sang on it. But I would never do a studio version of a Dylan song. I think it's just not, it's not my place. <laughs> no, it's it just interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask you that because I, I've heard other songwriters. Uh, there was one whose name escapes me right now, but, it, but, it, but he was writing a song and he consciously went, hmm, I wonder how... And I forget who it was, but I wonder how he would write this song. Yeah. And he tried to put himself in that headspace and because that's the kind of yeah. song that he wanted to write. So we come to the last track on the album, fittingly called uh, End of the Line, mainly written by George Harrison. Well, it's all right. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think my greatest memory of this song at the time, and, you know, that was a, a, a period where much music was, you know, playing videos a lot, was the shock that Orbison had died, uh, which I experienced again today when, or in the last couple of days when I realized that he was only 52, which is, is just incredible that he was that young. That's far too young. Um, but the video, which was beautifully made, got a lot of play. It had a lot of emotion with uh, Roy's guitar and the rocking chair. And, you know, I think there's, there's um, obviously it wasn't written as a goodbye to Roy Orbison, but it really has lines in it that make it feel like a goodbye to Roy Orbison, which is which really, really uh, sad and nice. And I think, you know, I mean, the, like, I, I mean, look at this record. It starts with Handle With Care and it ends with End Of The Line. I think those are two great, great Harrison songs. What happens in between is, you know, to me, a little bit, a little bit uneven, a little bit up and down, but boy, like you, I mean, as I said, the, the Orbison song right in the middle, it's, it makes for a monumental record and this song just wraps. Well, here are Orbison's lines. I mean, they couldn't be more poignant. Well, it's all right, even when push comes to shove. Well, it's all right, if you got someone to love. Well, it's all right, everything will work out fine. Well, it's all right, we're going to the end of the line. And those were Orbison's line in the song. Tom Petty says uh, it's his favorite song on the record. And he tells the story. Uh, Roy's funeral was only about a day before the video shoot, but we just tried to go on and hope we did him justice. And it turned out to be a curious song for the next single, you know, the end of the line. But I think it, you write these songs and it's funny how events come down. And later on, when you hear the song, it can mean so much more than when you were writing it. Tom Petty said that. And as you pointed out, the band featured, uh, the, the video featured the band miming the song on a set made to look a little bit like a boxcar and they had a photo of Roy and then his guitar was in a rocking chair as a tribute. Um, just to, to tease out that point a bit, um, does that happen? Like, Have you written a song that meant something to you when you were 25 and now all these years later it means something different to you? I think I think some songs become more poignant as you as you go on. I, I uh, Lois Lowe did a, a live album called Nothing Short of a Bullet, which for some reason that's one of the, that's the one record they haven't uh, reissued. I don't know what what the thought is behind that, but we did um, four studio songs that were attached to that, and one of the songs that I wrote for that album was a song called um, what's it called? Uh, oh boy. The song is called the New West, New Westminster Taxi Squad, and it's a. I was, I was in a period of time where I was writing late at night. I would, uh, I was playing uh, 
hockey with Bodidi and all my friends. And we would play, we had an 11 o'clock game. And so, and I wasn't uh, working during the day at that point. So I would, I would, uh, I'd come home from the game and then, you know, my wife was long asleep at that point and I would just sit in the living room with my guitar until probably four or five in the morning and write. And this one night I was watching CBC and uh, there was a documentary on about the new Westminster BC police force. And they were doing this maneuver where they were um, rounding up people that they suspected were drug dealers. They were confiscating their wallets, taking the money that was in the wallet and putting them in a taxi and saying to the taxi driver, drive this person as far as this money will go and then kick him out of the cab. And so, you know, and the the uh, reality about this particular program, which was off the books, was that most of the people that it was happening to were minorities. And so this guy, a documentary filmmaker, went out and kind of did this undercover expose about it. And um, so I wrote a song about that and we actually released it as a single with that record and you know to not much fanfare when you put a when you put like a single out with a live record you know it gets like a couple days of notice and then then you move on but and I'd forgotten about it for years I didn't and it's also it's on it's on uh, Thin Wild Mercury too if you cuz you know that record I did a version of it on that record as well that's the only time I've doubled up on a song in my entire career um but uh you know in the last year and a half, well, I mean, in the in the Trump years, it was all of a sudden that song was way more poignant than it was back then, and and it's almost like you know it's a story written about now and not about nineteen whatever that was probably oh well, it's probably like yeah ninety six or something like that or yeah so uh, a couple things about the cover art and a few things to wrap up and I'll, I'll get your final thoughts but sure. uh, the cover and CD booklet designed by David Costa at Wherefore Art uh, he also big name did covers for Elton John Chris Isaacs Blue Hotel don't know if you know that great great uh, great cover good record Eric Clapton Joe Cocker Concert for George cover he did that um, he's a former English folk guitarist and was in a band called Trees and then he moved into graphic arts uh, album features a group photo on the cover, sort of a black and white and looking like an old photo that you'd have found pasted up on a, a wall promoting a concert. Also, the Traveling Wilburys logo that looks a little like a sticker that you'd see in a packing case for a guitar. Back cover has five upright guitar cases as well as the track listing. And there were some liner notes that were ghost written by Michael Palin of yeah. Monty Python as uh, Hugh Jampton, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Uh, the Brit British listeners will know it. Hugh Jampton, a uh, bit of a British play on words. Uh, look it up. It's 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 along the lines of you know Mike Hunt on line one, right? It's one of those. So, uh, the the epilogue. So the four remaining Wilburys, they did do a follow-up album labeled as Volume 3 uh, in 1990. It sold well, went platinum in Canada, Australia, and the U.S. Then there was a box set of both albums plus extra tracks and a DVD that came out in 2007. That went to number one in the U.K. Um, now, it, it's funny, we, we alluded to this earlier, but here's what happened in the wake of the record. Um uh, in terms of a, a, a Wilbury boost or whatever you want to call it. Roy Orbison's posthumous record, Mystery Girl, came out in January of 1989. It was the biggest selling record of his career, contained the hit single, You Got It. Jeff Lynne was one of the producers on that record. Tom Petty released the uh, largely Jeff Lynne produced Full Moon Fever 
in April of 89, uh, I Won't Back Down, Free Fallen, Run Down a Dream, all huge hits. Album was the commercial peak of his career, five-time platinum in the U.S., six-time platinum in Canada. Uh, Bob Dylan had a return to form album, Oh Mercy, that came out in September of 89, gave him his highest chart position in years, number 30 on Billboard, number six in the UK. Here's the weird one. The instigator behind the whole project, George Harrison. The next album he comes out with is The Best of Dark Horse, 76 to 89, in October of 89, completely and utterly stiffs. Didn't chart in the UK or Canada, rose to the lofty heights of 132 on the US charts. And and the sad kind of wrap up to this, I mean, I'll get your opinion in a second, Stephen, but the Wilburys for me were really the final period of time that George was on the top of the pop music mountain. After the second Wilburys record in 1990, his next major musical venture was a tour of Japan in 1991 with Eric Clapton and his band. He released a live album from that tour in 1992, largely to fulfill the obligations of a contract. Did not trouble the charts at all, rising no higher than 126th on the Billboard album chart. Into the mid-90s, he was, like the other surviving Beatles, involved in the Beatles anthology project, including working on a couple of unfinished uh, John Lennon tracks with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr with Jeff Lynne as, yeah, as his producer, tracks that were released with the other anthology tracks. They were Free as a Bird uh, that came out in December of 95 and Real Love in March of 96. And then... Sometime around the spring of 1987, he was diagnosed with throat cancer. He was treated for it. Then on December 30th, 1999, he was attacked in his own home by a paranoid schizophrenic man who stabbed Harrison and almost stabbed him to death. And then in the spring of 2001, he was operated on after the cancer was found in one of his lungs. It subsequently spread to his brain, and he eventually died as a result of cancer on the 29th of November in 2001. He died in California in a house that was owned by Paul McCartney. So this was really in many ways, the final bow on top of the pop music mountain for Harrison, although he wouldn't have known it at the time. So for you, does that make it a happy record or a sad record? I think it makes it a happy record for me because I think, you know, and this is the context of watching all the interviews, and he did a lot of interviews around the Wilburys, both first record and the volume three oh, album. He loved the project, yeah. yeah. He loved it. And you could you see somebody who is very comfortable in his skin right around then. And I think, you know, as you said, early Beatles, there seemed like he was, you know, had a bit of a chip on his shoulder about being short shrifted as far as the songwriter goes. And he's had points in his career. It's funny because like, you know, when you talk about him walking away from music for a period of time, but then handmade films produced some of the most creative and beautiful films ever made in the history of cinema. So, you know, he's he had a pretty amazing career. There's this there's a story and and it just seems to be a life about friendship, which was that's so amazing. There's a story about um I think it's Tom Petty talk, talking after after Harrison's past and how Harrison took him to a, a Grand Prix race and, he, and you know, they were watching the race. And then Harrison said, well, let's go down. We're going to go down on the pit. Oh, it was Jeff Lynn, actually. And so they take him, they take him down on the pit and he says, 
George Harrison knew every driver. He said every driver was his friend. And we got to sit in cars, we got to drive one car, and like it was just George Harrison was larger than life. And and the Wilbury period, you can tell you can tell he's really happy. So how could you not be happy about that? What you know, I mean what happened afterwards? He he just he always just seemed like somebody who was a bit disenfranchised with the, with the with the pop machine, with the idea of having to make and make and make, and he seemed to do it when he wanted to do it, and that's 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 good enough for anybody, I think. I mean, if you're making music because you want to make it, what else can you what else can you ask for? So, what's your final takeaway on the record? We've been uh, we've been talking for the last hour and a half or so, and. Uh, What's your sort of takeaway from yeah. the album and our conversation and, and all the rest? Well, I've loved the conversation because it's been fun sort of digging into all the uh, exterior moments of, of how this album was made. I think, you know, if somebody had have got a good recording of those sessions when the five of them were sitting around talking and coming up with these songs and, you know, they, they tell the stories really, really beautifully about how watching Dylan put a song together or watching Orbison do the vocal for You're Not Alone Anymore. Um, if someone, if like, you know, it was just, it was just before like, those things were easily recorded because um, there must have been some incredible magic. Like, you know, you see a bit of it in that short documentary, but it's, it's pretty, excuse me, pretty crude footage and pretty, uh, uh, pretty, uh, you know, lack, it lacks focus. For me, there's some amazing moments in those in that piece watching Don Smith work, because I had that experience up up close and in person. Um, and there's a couple moments where you can see the detail. He's making sure that the machine is turned on properly when he's recording, and you just have to think this is a young guy and he's in the room with five of the greatest musicians in history who he loved, like. Out, out, out and out loved. That must have been amazing for him. And, you know, I lament that, that I was a little more in tune with that one. Although we did hear some great stories, so that was wonderful. But, um, you know, my, t- my take on the record is pretty much what I said to you at the beginning. I think I, start, I started off uh, thinking this record was a Harrison, um, you know, home run with everybody else kind of, you know, chipping in a little bit. But I think overall what it is, it's the story of how great music gets made when, when friends get together and love each other and love the experience of creating together, it you can't help but create something that sounds infectious and wonderful. So, yeah. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. It's we'll, been a lot of fun talking about this. We'll come back and do one more. Maybe you'll go, you'll go off the Beatle piece again. You'll come <laughs> up with something else. Thank you. Thanks. So what did you think about The Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1? What are your thoughts on our thoughts? I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the podcast episode page, which you'll find on my website, romicast.com. And you can also interact on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Uh, the handle on Twitter and Instagram is Romanuk Paul. That's Romanuk Paul, my name reversed. There is also a Facebook page. Just do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you'll find it and you can leave a comment there. That does it for this episode. You can explore Stephen Stanley 
Stanley's music at his website, which is stephenstanleyband.com. He is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can stream his music on Spotify, iTunes, Bandcamp, and all fine music streaming services. Coming up on the next episode, one of my favorite Beatles records, and it's one that, if there's such a thing as an underrated Beatles album, this may be it. I'm talking about 1964's Beatles for Sale. I'll be in conversation with songwriters and musicians Ryan and Sam Weber of the Weber Brothers Band. It's magic. It has that magic quality. And it's just, yeah. It's, it's got like the love. They, yeah, they created what they created out of nothing. Is you know That's what blows people away. That's what blew me away and still does. Still does. So full of love and spirit, you know. That's the Weber Brothers talking about 1964's Beatles for Sale on the next edition of The Walrus Was Paul. I'll talk to you then. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I play the drums, but I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar.